Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for Guy Talk, or guys who talk, and they're ready for your questions. So when you get the courage or you are ready to send it over, let me know. I'd love to hear your question. I know you've got one. Most all of us do. You've got a lot of a lot of people with very curious minds, which makes me very happy. Mm-hmm. And you will read something, you'll hear a sermon, you'll jot a note down, and you'll think, I need to get more information about that. Well, we're here to try to do our very best to answer your question. If you've got a question about the Bible or a Bible study you were in or a sermon you heard or something you would like uh, us to discuss, we would love to do that. So text your question over to 877 2484 All right. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. <laughs> Gentlemen, welcome. The pause is good. Good, good to be here. You guys, want to, you guys want to brag up what happened today? To, because you brought us pizza for the pizza. second P- week in a row. Yeah. We got yeah. pizza. Yeah, it was very good. Thank yeah. you so much. And thank Jeannie. Bill. Thank Jeannie. Oh, that was Jeannie again? Yeah. Thank you, Oh, Jeannie. she's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it, I, I kind of burned Jeff the first time because I brought a wild mushroom pizza, and I thought that would be something mm-hmm. everyone would like. Turns out I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Jeff, mushrooms go way back. Jeff's looking yeah. at this thing going, where's the meat? <laughs> where's the meat? Yeah, so I brought a meat pizza today, and I think everyone was very happy, including White, who had a piece. And uh, I don't know, what do you think of the pizza, went? Two thumbs up. Okay, good. So that's all the uh, reviews we need for the pizza. Okay. Anyway, you guys look happy, and we're excited to hear your questions. Here's one hot off the press, and good afternoon to you and your crew today. How about that? Very kind. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Good afternoon. Here's a question that you heard many times, I'm sure, but here I go. Just had a class on New Testament the other evening, and it was the book of Revelation. The instructor has end times timeline as currently church age, then rapture, then seven years tribulation, thousand year reign on earth of Christ, and finally second coming. If Jesus is returning once more, is he not returning in the thousand year reign? And is the second, and is that the second coming? So let me clarify something here. He has the second coming at the end of the thousand year reign. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because then who is reigning during that thousand year reign? <laughs> in other words, it's Christ's thousand year reign. Revelation 20 says that they, the church, the tribulation martyrs, came to life and reigned with him, with Jesus, for a thousand years. He establishes his kingdom. There's uh, there's dozens of Old Testament passages that describe that when Jesus returns, he will, he will establish his kingdom, and that kingdom is for a thousand years. So, in fact, his disciples asked him when he's going up to heaven, expecting this kingdom at his first coming, they say, Lord, 
are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And and he does not say yes, so the kingdom doesn't start, so we know that. But we know that when he returns, that's when he establishes his kingdom. So I agreed with everything in that timeline that uh, th- that, that question listed off, except I would put the second coming at the end of the tribulation, Revelation 19, that that John sees heaven standing open and a rider on a horse who is Christ returning to earth. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and then he establishes his kingdom for a thousand years. And so I'd move the second coming up to the beginning of the thousand years. That's what's called pre-millennialism. And then he is the one who reigns for a thousand years. Then at the end of the thousand years, that's when we get the Great White Throne Judgment, New Heaven and New Earth, and then all of eternity. Mm-hmm. Let me just add a couple more questions that are still on this uh, text. And is Christ at the time of rapture not coming? And he is coming at the time of rapture. He is. That word is used in Scripture to, to describe the rapture. So you have to distinguish between several passages that describe his coming, quote-unquote. Is it the, the rapture? Or is it the second coming? And I believe, I understand Scripture being that those are two separate events. One's at the beginning of the tribulation, one's at the end of the tribulation. But yes, he comes in the air, and we go up to meet him at the rapture. At the second coming, he comes from heaven to earth, and the armies of heaven were following him. All right. Where are the believers from the rapture during the millennium? They are the ones, Revelation 20 says, and they come to life. They are resurrected. They mm-hmm. receive their glorified bodies. They come to life, and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. Okay. So they receive their resurrected bodies. They, like the rest of the church, will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Okay. So that's what they're doing during this time, reigning with Christ for that thousand years. Correct. So and and I think the question was specifically those who died during the tribulation. Is that correct? Uh. No. Um, or just the church in general. Yeah, what's the church doing? Yeah, so doing? the church in general, yeah, we, we reign with him. We have an inheritance. We will reign with him. We are heirs, co-heirs with Christ, and a part of our inheritance is this ruling and reigning with Christ on earth. Remember, we are in our glorified bodies. Mm-hmm. Christ is in his glorified bodies. We are the the ruling a group of people, Christ with his glorified church. The nations that that live and survive through the tribulation, the sheep of the sheep and the goat judgment, and Israel, which will be saved when he comes, enter into the millennial kingdom in their earthly, in their bodily bodies. Mm-hmm. And they will have babies and babies and babies, and that the pop, population of the earth will grow once again. That is who Christ is ruling and reigning over. Okay. My friend believes that it's just the second coming and no rapture. No millennia, and we are currently in tribulation. Says much of the book is figurative and impossible to interpret. Yeah, this is a one. There's several big dividing lines with how you handle eschatology, and one of the first ones is: is it yet future, or is it past? So that's a big dividing line. Another big dividing line: are these events literal, or are they all symbolic? And once you make them all symbolic, um, then they can really mean whatever you want because it's all just symbolism, right? And if it's all just symbolism, then there isn't a literal uh, – a, a literal. the book of Revelation is not a literal set of events that's going to happen in the future. But I would argue if you're going to take it as all symbolic, 
Well, then even Revelation 19, you need to take a symbolic, which is the second coming of Christ. And nobody ever says that's just symbolic. Most believers believe there's going to be a literal return of earth. Zechariah 12 says it this way, that when Christ returns, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and his people Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn like one mourns for a child. So they will see him when he comes. The world will see his, see him when he comes. Matthew 24 says, just as lightning in the east is visible in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The world will see him coming on the clouds with power and great glory. Um, so yes, that event is literal. As such, I believe all the events are literal uh, this seven-year tribulation and the second coming and the millennial reign are all future literal events. I always start out by taking all of Scripture literally, unless the Scripture shows me that it's meant symbolically. Correct. Absolutely. And that's what we need to be careful of when we get into these type of things. So I agree with you, Jeff. What astounds me is in Revelation 20, because you mentioned it, at the end of the thousand-year reign, it says Satan will be released from prison and come out to deceive the nations. You think about it. For a thousand years, these people have been with the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the people that have come with them. How in the world does Satan gain any foothold at all in people's lives to draw them away from the Lord Jesus when you've been in his presence? Because everybody I've talked to said, you know, Pastor, I believe in Jesus, and I read the scriptures, and if he just appeared to me once, if he just show up and talk to me, it would make all the difference in the world. Well, they have the Lord Jesus Christ reigning over them. He's there, and yet some of them are going to fall away. How do we even conceive of that, and what do we need to be doing now to prepare Christians for that day when it comes, or even for living right now, so they aren't pulled away from Jesus? Nice start, gentlemen. All right. You guys get all, you get a little pizza in you, and look what happens. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. That's that's the key, right? Right, right there. What, yeah. pizza? Yeah, a little energy, yeah, a little food. Works. Yeah, well, don't get used to it. Okay. <laughs> Seriously, because... Uh, <laughs> These days are coming to a fast we, we were surprised it was here today, but, yeah, so we're you, okay. Okay, good. After right. two weeks, isn't that a tradition? No, two it's weeks? not. No. no, no. All right, you're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. So questions that come in, we'll do our best to answer. Jeff Verdorn and Tom Parrish are my, my power panel today. And some great questions are flooding in, so I love this. Uh, please explain the difference of faith without works is dead versus not being able to earn our way to salvation. Salvation being the gift of God, not as a result, works so that no one can boast. Still confusing. Okay. it's it Actually, it's it sounds confusing at first, and I will agree. But if you understand that faith is a gift, it's not something we conjure up. Grace and faith are gifts of the Holy Spirit that come into our lives, and then we respond to it. Now, your works will never get you into the kingdom of God. Works don't get you into the kingdom of God. But once you have faith, your works reflect the kingdom of God and reflect your relationship with Jesus. And your faith is meant to make you a reflection of Jesus in everything you do. If there are no works, if you're not doing the good things, not so that you can get a reward from them, not so people will praise you, but out of thankfulness for Jesus, then you're really not reflecting that thankfulness for what he's done for you. I'm not talking about salvation here, but I am talking about whether we're going to be faithful disciples or unfaithful disciples. And I think that's a challenge for many Christians because it's not enough to simply come to church and say, I believe in Jesus. If coming out of that is not a thankful heart, that literally goes out and makes a difference in this world for the gospel. Mm. 
So about three times, Tom said that this faith without works is not about salvation. And and James was not taught. This passage comes from James, by the way. If we read the passage, it says, But you do not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. Well, many think that's about salvation. It's just not. What James is saying when he says faith is without works is dead is not that if you don't have any works, you're unsaved. People want to take that word dead, meaning you're dead spiritually, meaning you're unsaved. That's not what James is saying. What James is saying is faith without works is useless. The Greek word there for dead is nekros, and it means destitute of power, basically. Mm, Yes. It means powerless. And that is what a Christian who's been saved, who's born again, who has the power from above, but isn't living that out, that's what they are. They're, they're, they're destitute of power. They're, they're worthless. They're not bearing fruit for God. For we know from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that from a salvation perspective, it's not by work. Some say that James and Paul are saying two different things. They're actually saying the same thing. So if we read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which is kind of the, the go-to verse that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, it says this. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from, from God. Not by works, verse 9, so that no one can boast. But here's the next verse. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do yeah. good works. Mm. Works don't save us, save us. Only faith save us, saves us. But once we're saved, we should be doing good works. And when we don't, James says that kind of faith is powerless, it's useless, it's unproductive, it's unfruitful. That's what James means by faith without works Mm. is dead. You know, you think about the land, since Martin Luther, when he came along and said, look, um, you're not going to be saved by your works, you're not going to be saved by lighting candles, you're not going to be saved by praying for the dead. He said, you're only saved by grace through faith. And he said, I stand on faith alone. You Sola to, fida. Yep. You come up to the 20th century, and we had some mar- 18, well, the 19th to 20th century, we've had some marvelous preachers of the gospel, but they were so fixed on what I think Luther really pointed out. And so for salvation, having faith was always getting into heaven, you know, having your sins forgiven, but not talking about the power. The power of faith then takes a common individual who doesn't have any real power of their own and creates in them a warrior for the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. And look at it. You and I know people, we all know people who were virtually nobody, woke up to Jesus, and then went out and started ministries and changed people's lives and touched hundreds of people with the gospel. Every single Christian is meant to do that. Hmm. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Yep. You know, you guys are stumbling over your words just a little bit today, and it's probably because you're under the influence of pizza. (laughs) I'm just saying. Let me know what you have for questions for the Power Panel today, 877-933-2484. We'd love to try to answer your question, and we know no question uh, scares us. We'll do our very best. 877-933-2484. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. 
Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. Welcome to the show. It's Guy Talk time. I've got Jeff Verdorn and Tom Parrish here. We're ready for your questions. Some great ones coming in. Let me throw this one out, uh, gentlemen. How much power does the devil really have? He has real power, but he is also masquerading as having more than he's really got. (laughs) Jesus has all the power. And the name of Jesus, and I've seen it over and over as I worked with people in the demonic realm and people in witchcraft, the name of Jesus is powerful, and the demons shudder. But the, de- the, the devil has power, and here's the problem. The more you listen to the devil, the more you give in to what he wants you to do, the more power he gets over you. But does he have power to come in and just take your life from you if you're a believer? No. It is only when we fail as individuals, I'm not talking about believers here, but as individuals, to not let Jesus in, and then we open the door for Satan. Mm-hmm. In First John 5, it says, We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. He is described in Scripture as the God of this age. Um, when Jesus was tempted, he said to Jesus, Bow down and worship me, and I will give you the kingdoms of the, of the earth, the kingdoms of the world. Was it his to give? Uh, Well, it sure seems like it. It seems like he has been allowed by God because nothing happens without God. So obviously this is is allowed by God that he has a certain level of authority in this world right now. The way I describe it, the metaphor I use is God is the principal of the school, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a bully out on the playground and this bully has some freedom, some latitude to bully the people of the playground. But one day... The principal's going to step out of his office and go and he's going to grab that bully and he's going to put him in detention. That was that thousand year reign that we were talking about right. where Satan is is locked up. And we know that he is a defeated foe. Right. Right. Christ well, defeated him on the cross. And uh, so, look, he has a certain amount of power and authority in this world. But it's and, and it says the whole world is under the control of the evil one, but it's not unlimited. And that's why I think that picture in Job where it says there's a hedge of protection around it. I pray for hedges of protection around my family often because under God's protection, Satan can't touch you. I want to add one more sphere to this. I like what you just said. Here's what I want to add to it. What does the Bible say about Satan? When he speaks, he always speaks. And lies. And lies. So did he speak in lies to Jesus? Well, of course he was speaking lies because in his humanity, Jesus could be tempted, as we are, the scripture says, but he never did. He never gave in. Could Satan have given him all the kingdoms of the world? I don't believe so. But he put that in front of the Son of God to say, hey, you're all powerful. Don't you want all the kingdoms? Why do you have to go through this cross business and suffer? When he comes to us, that's what he does. He deceives us, makes us believe we can get more than we're going to get. It's kind of like my dad, when he was young, uh, was an animal trapper. It was back in the 30s, and, you know, Sears catalog would give you 
$2 for a, a mink if you got it and you could send it in. And that was a big deal. But he said, here's the thing with it. You always had to attract the mink or the other animals with something that was a trick. So they get in the noose or they get in the cage and be trapped. That's all that Satan does. Hmm. He puts us out there. You can have this. And when we step into that, suddenly the noose comes around our neck. And then we're in trouble. Was your? Did you say your dad was a trapper? When he was a young man, yes. Yeah. Could you ever sneak out of the house? Uh, me? No, I couldn't. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I no. Could, I could picture you getting snagged in a trap. I couldn't. He, you better I, believe it. I'm sure he was trying to slow you down, too. He, he had his hands full. Yeah. The other verse that I always think of is... Uh, it's Second uh, Timothy 2, 24 to 26. I'll read it. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Mm. Yep. So if you're outside of the family of God, that's where you're living. Yeah, I remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, they said, uh, you know, Moses is our father. And Jesus said, if Moses was your, your father, you would listen to him because he actually spoke about me. Moses said that when another prophet is going to come and that you must listen to him. And uh, and Jesus then continues and says, as it is, your father is the devil, right? Ouch. Yeah. Right. If you are, remember, Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. And those who don't know Christ are against Christ. Their father is the devil. They've been taken captive by the devil's lies. If you look at the life of Jesus in ministry, he was gentle with the Gentiles when they came along, like the centurion or the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He was pretty gentle with his disciples most of the time, but not with the religious leaders. He came down pretty hard on them. And I think that what we have to understand is that when we are like this passage here, this passage in Timothy is written to either nominal Christians or people outside of Christianity you're trying to interact with. Treat them gently. Maybe the door will open. Maybe the Lord will open a door. But when you're dealing with religious leaders who are misleading people, Jesus was not gentle at all. And I think the problem in Christianity is we have allowed a lot of teaching to go on that's maybe 85% biblically accurate, but there's a bad part to it that nobody's challenging anybody on. And as a result, that's why we have all these different ideas out there when really I don't think the Lord has designed the Bible to have a thousand different ideas. It's one idea, but the problem is we keep going in the wrong direction. So the religious leaders he went after because they showed stupidity along with ignorance. Mm -hmm. That's why Paul instructs Timothy to guard your doctrine closely. Yep. All right. Here's another question regarding the enemy. Does Satan have a way to get by our armor and shield when we sin? Tom Parrish? Well, the thing of it is, you can't put on the armor unless you're already saved by Jesus Christ. This armor is offered to the believers. Why do you put on armor? So that when the arrows come or the flames come, <coughs> excuse me, you're protected. The problem for most people is, Either they don't put it on every day or they take it off way too early in a situation. And I see Christians get caught up in affairs, stupidity, all kind of stuff. And it's a shame they don't need to because they already have the armor. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at Ephesians 6 and you look at the instructions from Paul, he says, Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. That's as much as, like Tom said, if you're a believer— 
You have the armor of God. It, it is completely available to you, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, and on. And that is yours. What he's saying is appropriate it. He, he uses the metaphor of putting this on because he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our battle is a spiritual battle. That is our reality. Now, we were talking about this a little bit at break. If the armor is representative of salvation, can an arrow get through your armor and somehow spoil or, or, or so that you'd lose your salvation? In that regard, I'd say no. God's armor is impenetrable, right? You cannot lose your salvation. If it's a metaphor for walking this life and being um, uh, knocked down, tormented, uh, trials and tribulations in this world that come from the enemy, well then, yes, the more you are in the word, the more you're trusting in Christ, the more you're seeking him first, well then your armor will be impenetrable. But as Tom was saying, even as believers, we can get entrapped by the devil. And I think that's when we don't uh, appropriate or appropriate or put on our armor uh, uh, well enough. You know, Jeff, you're you're... I believe a very good Bible teacher, and Bill, you're a good Bible teacher. Here's what I'm missing in Christianity. When I listen to people on TV or I listen to go to other churches, and there are some great preachers out there, don't get me wrong, but too often they're not telling people how to put on the armor. There's, they're talking about getting saved, which is great. I'm, I all mm-hmm. believe in that, believe even as a Lutheran and altar calls. So you bring people to faith in Jesus. That's good. However, most churches, most teaching of the Word of God is too theological or too cliche-ish, you know, from what somebody said in the past, without saying, how do you put on that armor? How do you protect the, the, the armor, the breastplate? What did it protect? It protected the heart. How do you protect your heart? I find as a pastor, after nearly 48 years of doing this, the only way I could protect my heart from being stupid and making mistakes and with all the, the men and women I'd talk to, not making some mistake with another person, uh, though I married, is I had to have other Christian men around me who held me accountable. They became my breastplate because I've got two guys right now, and they still to this day will call me on a regular basis, and I'll call them, and they'll say, so how you doing? What you looking at? What you thinking about? What's going on? And that is important, but most Christians today don't get that because we're in and out of church or we're watching it on Zoom and there's nobody there challenging us. Notice how Paul starts this whole passage on the armor. He says, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. Not if, not whether or not it's going to come, but when that day of evil comes. Look, evil, it will come knocking on your doorstep, either through temptations or lies or trials and tribulations. <clears throat> and when that day comes, Christian, are you fully dressed in God's armor so that you can walk through it. Yep. All right, here's a question. I wish uh, Dr. Greg Borgon was with us because he did a whole uh, teaching lesson on this, on the show. But in Revelations 3, 5, it says that God will not blot out Christians' names from the book of life. Does that mean God may blot out people's names? There's two different views on this. Because this book of life, or the Lamb's book of life, we know at the end of time, at the great white throne judgment, that only those who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior will be in the Lamb's book of life. It is the book of 
life after all, right? It also seems to indicate in Scripture that this book was written before the foundation of the world. Well, how could God know who was going to be saved throughout the ages before the world was even created? Well, he's God. He knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. So I don't think that's hard to understand. Here's the theological difference. Were all names written in the book of life, every single person, and only the lost then are removed? Or are only the saved in the Lamb's book of life Mm -hmm. from the beginning of time? Do you see the distinction? Those are generally the two views. I tend to fall on the side that it's only the saved that were ever and only written in the Lamb's book of life. Mm -hmm. Why would a dead person ever be listed in the Lamb's book of life if they never belonged to the Lamb? So I don't think any—by the way, then, therefore, can a name be erased or removed from the Lamb's book of life? And I don't think that's possible. That would mean you could lose your salvation in some way, shape, or form. Well, let's go back to the devil for a moment. What does he want to do to every Christian? Make you believe you're not going to get there. Make you believe that believing in Jesus isn't enough. You haven't done enough good works. You haven't added to it. And so most of the Christians I work with live in that kind of in-between area of, am I saved or am I not saved? And maybe I got to do more. This is a reassurance passage. Mm. The reassurance says, when you are saved by the blood of Jesus, your name will never be taken out of the book of life. Praise God. Mm. All right, we're going to take a little break, which is what we do periodically on Guy Talk, and then we come back and we get all these great questions. So include yours in today's list, 877-933-2484. We'd love to discuss what's on your mind today, 877-933-2484. Jeff Verdorn and Tom Parrish are my guests. We'll be right back. There's very little complaining in the studio today because my guests are all pizzaed up and I'm glad that they are uh, <laughs> they are ready to go for they've got your time for your questions. Send it over 877-933-2484. We're did talking- you uh, happen to bring ice cream for dessert? <laughs> I didn't. No? Oh, I didn't. Don't shoot. get greedy. Okay. No, I've got to go. All right. <laughs> Here's a question. Uh, Mary says, but God allows suffering no matter how much armor you put on. God even says in the Bible that we will suffer many trials and tribulations. I don't agree with the idea that if you keep praying and reading your Bible, you will not have as many trials. However, that doesn't mean you stop reading your Bible and praying, though. I agree. What's well, your good. name? Mary. Yeah. I agree with Mary. Yeah. If Did Stephen have his armor on when he, when he was stoned? martyred for yes. Christ? Yeah. Yes, he did. Did Paul have his armor on? He was killed yes. for Christ. Probably all the apostles, except for John, were probably killed for their faith. Did they have all their armor on? Yes. Remember the Ephesians 6 passage said, when that day of evil comes. There's a difference between you and I as believers suffering because of the sins of the world, the sins of others, the evil that's out there, as compared to we suffer because we gave into temptation. We allowed sin into our hearts, and that's what the armor is there for, to protect us from not letting the sin into our hearts, not turning us into people that are like the devil. 
But from the outside, Christians uh, die in plane crashes. They get cancer. They suffer. And like Jeff said, you know, Stephen and, and Paul went through the same thing. So I think if we understand that, then we have a much better grip on how to deal with this world because the goal of this life and then we'd all have to be 100 years old and die in perfectly good health. But the goal in this life is to walk with Jesus every day and to be like him as much as possible until the day he calls us home. Mm-hmm. Right. Remember the passage Jesus says, do not fear him who can destroy the body, Satan, who can destroy Christian martyrs over the 2,000 years, but fear him or awe him that can destroy the body and the soul in the fire of hell. That's It's God who controls the eternal destiny of people. And if you are in Christ Jesus, Satan can destroy the body, but he can't touch your eternal salvation. Jeff, explain God's character, because that all of a sudden sounds like you just described kind of a mean God that can destroy destroy your soul in hell. Well, we know who's going to be destroyed in hell, and that's only those who have rejected the truth of God, Mm -hmm. rejected Christ as their Savior, so we see this in the, the book of Revelation when we read about the great white throne judgment. The, we were just talking about the Lamb's book of life. If we go to Revelation chapter 20, it describes this judgment day, this day when, every, the, by the way, this is the only day in all of human history in which all people will be together. God will be on the throne. Christ is on the throne. Believers are on the throne. We're on one side. And before us is lost humanity. And their names will not be found in the Lamb's book of life. And Scripture says they are thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And then God makes a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and only the righteous shall enter into that new eternal kingdom. Revelation says nothing unrighteous or nothing unjust will ever enter into it. God has to to get rid of sin once and for all, and that's why the lost have to be, must be thrown into the lake of fire, because in eternity, there is no more sin. And our righteousness has nothing to do with how many good things we do. Correct. It's that we fall on our knees before our Savior when he calls us, and we're covered with his blood for eternity. All right. Kathy wants to know, is it true that Satan cannot read our minds? He's a creed. Go ahead, Jeff. I was going to say this is a tough one. I think only God is omniscient. Yeah. Um, but God, but Satan knows man. Yes. He's observant. He's very he's observant, and he's you. been observing people mm. for thousands of years, and so he knows the human character. He knows the human nature, and so he knows mankind better than probably we know ourselves in a way. But I no, I don't think he can read minds. I agree. He's a created being. He cannot read minds in that sense, but what he can do is he's pretty good at observing our behavior and how we look and how we act, and he knows, hey, there's an area I can tempt him in. You said he is a created being. Yes. Okay. Just It sounded for a second like you said creative. No, no, no. I was just trying to correct that. Thank you. He was created by the Lord. Right. And in good stead at one time, but then fell away from the Lord. Mm -hmm. All right. um, By the way, there's no Bible passage for that. That's just kind of a conclusion that we both seem to have made independently here from kind of our understanding of scripture. But there's no passage that says that says that where you kind of have to evaluate what all of scripture says about Satan and come to that conclusion. Well, here's the thing. Satan is not a God. 
there is only one God, real in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So everything else had to be created. Correct. Now, that's a deduction. You're right. There is no direct scripture passage. All right. Um, my eight-year-old son wants to ask, will there be more people in heaven or hell? Well, your son is already a theologian. Um, and that's pretty incredible <laughs> that at eight years old you're asking that question. I, I had to wait till I was at least nine before I started to think along those lines. But Matthew seven thirteen, Jesus, these are his words. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus is saying, look, I want, I want everybody, I wouldn't, like everybody to be saved. I wish all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But in our free will, the vast majority will choose to ignore Jesus and his salvation and go their own way, and that's that wide path. But those who enter into life are the ones that finally come to Jesus and surrender. And it breaks God's heart, by the way. Yeah. God is yeah. a God that wishes none to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's God's desire. That's his heart. That's why he sent his son to die for the sins of the world and open up this doorway to heaven that by faith you too can be saved and enter through that narrow gate that leads to everlasting life. But yes, I agree that I think most of mankind is going to go through that broad road to destruction. Yeah, um, I don't know, you know, if you look at the United States of America, what is the percentage of Americans who are truly saved, who are truly born again, who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. I've seen numbers as far as low as 7, 8, 9 yeah. percent. I've seen numbers as high as uh, 33, 35 percent. I think it's over 30 percent in the United States of all the surveys that I've read. So, But even in one of the most Christian nations in all the world, a th say it's a third, a third of the people are saved and two-thirds are unsaved. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Well, and the more comfortable we are, the more things we have, the more leisure time we have will always lead us down the wrong path. You go to countries, you know this, Jeff, where there is persecution and there is hardship. To proclaim the name of Jesus means you're putting your life on the line. Mm. And there are people who do that. And I believe in those places, you'd find the number of believers higher than what we're finding here in the United States. All right, we're going to take a break, but we'll be back with lots more Guide Talk. And the questions that are coming in are wonderful. I want to encourage you to submit a question, especially if you've never done it and you've been thinking about it. Now's a great day to do it. 877-933-2484. Just get in the habit of asking questions often, because that's what we do around here is we do our very best to answer the questions that come in. 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to the show. It's Guy Talk. We're so glad that you have sent over great questions. Here's one as a follow-up to this, um, your name being blotted out of the book of life. 
the question or comment is there's an exhortation, which is an encouragement. I think that's what that word means, Mm -hmm. encouragement, in the Old Testament that says something like, be careful lest your name be removed from the book of life. And I think that's Psalm 69, 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Tom Parrish? It's interesting because as I'm looking at this, uh, the Hebrew for Psalm 69 does not have the word blotted in it. The translators put that word in to make a little more sense out of it. You could actually read it if you just read it straight with the Hebrew straight through. Let them be out of the book of the living. Let them not be, now the word enrolled is in the Hebrew among the righteous. So mm-hmm. we've got to be cautious about this because we've got we've got basically the psalmist David saying the righteous the unrighteous don't belong there and Lord don't let them in under any circumstances. But the issue here is not that their name is already there and it's going to be written out now, as far as I can see. It's not talking about blotting them out. It just says don't let them be put in the book of life. Yeah, so whether this book, as we were talking about earlier, contains only the righteous from the beginning of time and therefore doesn't change, or whether it contains all men's names and the those who do not believe are blotted out, either way, those with those two views, that book is identical in either one of those cases at the end of time when the judgment day comes, right? It yeah. only contains the righteous. I remember my first high school dance. And I was terrified to ask a girl to this dance. My father, with great wisdom, I'm said really to me, wondering how you're going to connect this back well, just, to the just, okay. Just, just <laughs> no, my dad was really wise because he said, "Tom, if you ask and she says no, then you don't have a date. If you don't ask her, you still don't have a date." <laughs> and that's what it's saying here. Gotcha. You know, it doesn't matter if your name's not in there; you're in trouble. That was good. I like that. All right, Psalm 89 talks about servant David being firstborn son mightiest king on earth, preserving an heir for him, etc. Is is the psalmist talking about David or Jesus or both? I'm sorry, give me the text again, Psalm. Psalm 89. 89, yeah. Talks about servant David being firstborn son, mightiest king on earth, preserving an heir for him, etc. Is the psalmist talking about David or Jesus or both? So this is very interesting because there's lots and lots of psalms that are messianic, that have descriptions, uh, either self-descriptions or descriptions of, of the world, that um, seem to apply to David, but but more specifically uh, are fulfilled or sound like Christ. So you have some messianic psalms that describe the crucifixion, like Psalm uh, 22 is very uh, very specific things that David is describing that are specifically met on the day of the crucifixion of the Messiah. So I'm looking at 89. I was trying to use that as a lead-in to kind of look through some of this stuff. And um, this is the this is so. Let's go to verse three, for example. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, that I will establish your line forever. Well, we know who that line is established through forever, and that is through Christ, right? And actually Luke 1, 32 and 33 confirms that, that Christ is the one who will reign forever as the servant of David. So, um, and I'm looking, th- he, you never mentioned the verse, so I was looking for the verse that you mentioned, but I haven't found it. There is no verse, it was just Psalm 89. And, and the question is, is the psalmist talking about David or Jesus or both? As such, I, I would 
think it's both because I actually some of my notes on here, uh, verse after verse says through Christ in the margin, through Christ in the margin. So I will establish my line forever through his throne, by his throne, that is through Christ. When he says, I will not violate my covenant, uh, that is uh, through Christ. Verse 36, this line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. That is through Christ. Uh, so I would say both. Mm-hmm. Without a specific verse, I don't know what specific verse he's describing here. But yes, many places here is describing both David and its full completion or full fulfillment in Christ. You can Let me add a little more to that. Psalm 110 verse 1. David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, set my right hand until I make my en- your enemies your footstool. So there seems to be the duality there. I think, mm-hmm. Jeff, what mm-hmm. you're showing is correct in the scriptures, but there seems to be this duality that David is also talking about the Messiah, how he understood the Messiah or whatever, because David himself knew, and that's why I love the Psalms, he knew he was a sinner. He knew he fell far short. So he is not the model, per se, but the one who's coming. And so I think that's what Psalm 110 is talking about. Mm-hmm. Nicely done. On the fly, you guys are opening up Psalm 89 and going on the fly. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying. All right. It's helped. Um, was wondering a bit about Matthew 12, 30 to 32. Is there such a thing as an unpardonable sin for believers? Um, no. I think the unpardonable sin, quote unquote, this is... Um, Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Um, and so this kind of what's known as the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. If you are in Christ, you have been forgiven. Yes. There is nothing left that you are to need forgiveness for. You stand forgiven before God. That's what the blood of Christ cleanses us of all, all, A-L-L, unrighteousness. You are clean before God. You are made holy. You have his righteousness. You uh, now can come before his throne of grace with confidence because you know you have been forgiven. So specifically, there are theologians talk about two ideas or interpretations of this passage. One is that it just means unbelief, that that's the only unpardonable sin. Remember, Thessalonians says they perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. They didn't believe Therefore, they're not saved. That's the only unforgiven or unforgivable sin, if you will. There are others who make this more nuanced and say it's specifically a sin ascribing Jesus's power to that of Satan, which happens earlier in in this chapter. And that really, this is is something very specific that could only happen in the time of Christ. I tend to take a more general view of this, that the unforgivable sin is unbelief. It may well be. You know, I've always struggled with uh, this passage. Last couple of years, though, as I've looked at, like, John 3, and we talk about Nicodemus all the time being born again, and it's it's a common phraseology in our Christianity. But Jesus, what does he say? Unless you are born again by the Spirit, you can't even believe. So, you know, it's— So it's, that's an unbeliever. That's an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. But the point of it is, how does a person not be born again so that they can believe— and then be condemned. Somewhere along the way, they've got to wake up, but refuse, and that's what I see here, refuse the Spirit's message. Now, whether we want to call that born again, 
Uh, born again sounds more like the completion of the, the whole act where you have faith in Jesus. But Jesus is saying in John 3, and if anybody could show me differently, I'd love to see it. He's saying, if you aren't born again by the Spirit, you can't even recognize who I am. You don't have the power. And he said, it's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is everyone born of the Spirit. And I think that's a passage. I would love to have a conference and sit down and study John 3 together because I see how it's used, and it's usually used for those that are it's, it's those that are saved. And I agree. If you're, if you're saved, you've been born again. But what happens to the people that don't have the spiritual awakening? And if you don't have the spiritual awakening, Jesus says you can't believe anyway. So there's something more going on here. Mm-hmm. So don't refuse the Holy Spirit's word is mm. what's being said. Great, great questions and great answers. All right, Tom Parrish, I'm looking your direction. I attend a Lutheran church, and I found out one of my friends studies out of a Bible from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Can you help inform me on the reasons he shouldn't study from that Bible? Well, part of the problem with the Latter-day Saints is that their concept of Jesus, uh, most people don't realize it, the, the Mormons basically believe Jesus and Satan were brothers, and that basically Jesus came forward. Oh, yeah, that's the teaching of Mormonism. They're brothers? They're brothers. In in Mormonism, Satan is a created being. We were talking about that earlier. Yes. But Jesus also is a created being. So we kind of have this Thor-Loki thing going, right? You know, a good good brother and a bad brother. Yes, they're both created beings. And by the way, I'm sorry, Tom. No, no, you're fine. Finish. That is where you go anytime you have a, a Mormon or even a Jehovah Witness for that matter. You focus on who is Christ. Yes. Is he a created being or is he the creator God? Hmm. So our Mormon friends and their Bible, basically what they teach and what the, the temple teaches in Salt Lake City in Utah is that someday you're going to be a God if you are married in the Mormon church or you are part of the Mormons. And you're going to have two sons. And whichever brings to you the best plan of salvation for the planet you're going to rule over, believe it or not, hmm. will be the Savior. Wow. So Satan could be the Savior in one world and not other. Here's what we got to do. We stay away from it, and I would say find another Bible and read that and stay away from that Bible. All right. Hour two is just ahead. Lots more guide talker guys who talk. Send your questions over 877-933-2484. Can't wait to get your question. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.